Welcome to episode 21 of Keep On Grooving. This is it. After many, many teases over the past few months, we finally get to what I call the Curtis Knight episode. We'll go over Jimmy's entire pre-experienced career from the time he left Seattle to join the Army up through those last recordings with Curtis Knight and Ned Chalpin, with the focus being on the three phases of Squire releases, the 260s albums, a box from the 90s, and the three experienced Hendrix collections. Episode 21, The Chitlin Circuit and Curtis Knight Era, 1961 to 1966. Let's start with a quick recap of Jimmy's pre-fame life. He was born on November 27, 1942 in Seattle to Al and Lucille Hendrix and named at that time Johnny Allen Hendrix. Al had been away in the Army at the time, so it took him several years to get back and see his son. He was renamed James Marshall Hendrix soon after that. His parents had another son, Leon, and the family bounced around quite a bit. Al and Lucille divorced in 1951 with Al retaining custody. Lucille passed away in 1958, but Al refused to let his sons go to the funeral. He loved his boys, but he was tough on them. Jimmy had shown an interest in playing guitar after finding a ukulele in the garbage, so Al bought him a real guitar for $5 when he was 15. After that, Jimmy basically stuck to his guitar every moment he could, playing in a number of local bands. After a few minor run-ins with the law, at age 19, he enlisted in the Army and ended up in the 82nd Airborne. It was there he met a bass player named Billy Cox. After Hendrix's discharge from the Army, Jimmy said it was from a parachuting injury, but it may have been the Army deciding he just wasn't going to be a good soldier. He and Billy Cox formed the King Casuals. From there, Jimmy bounced from band to band and town to town, looking to get noticed. He often ran down the list of bands he played with before he hit it big. Uh, Joey D and the Starlighters, I can see the Turner, uh, Jackie Wilson, Wilson Pickett. For the latter artist, it looks like he played only one gig with Wilson, but... He always made the list. From there, he headed up to Harlem and got together with Fame Pridgen, who knew the music scene there very well. He also hung out with the Allen brothers, Arthur and Albert. It was also there that he expressed a great interest in the music of Bob Dylan. Bit of an interesting combo there, but we like what we like. It was at this point he began his recording career as mostly documented on disc one of West Coast Seattle Boy. We did that in an earlier episode. This episode starts to fill in the big gap in that era, namely Curtis Knight and the Squires. As I mentioned in the earlier Curtis Knight segment, many thanks to Nico Bauer at earlyhendrix.com for trying to make sense of all these early tracks and keys to Lang for additional info he provided. Jimmy signed a contract with Sue Records in 1965, but nothing was ever released. A few months after that, he signed on to become the guitar player for Curtis Knight and the Squires, an R&B band that recorded for Ed Chalpin's PPX Records. He signed a contract with them for three years and was paid the princely sum of $1. I wonder if Ed ever knew Randolph and Mortimer Duke. He recorded a few single sides with them towards the end of the year, as well as some live dates, including my favorite, Hackensack. 
Jimmy left the Squires in 1966 and decided to strike out on his own. He dubbed himself Jimmy James and put together a band called the Blue Flames. One of the other members of the band was a youngster named Randy Wolf. Since there was another Randy in the band, Jimmy nicknamed the bass player Randy Texas and the young guitar player Randy California. That name stuck when he went back home and started a band with his stepdad called Spirit. They were pretty influential. Just ask Jimmy Page. The Blue Flames were sort of the house band at the Cafe Wa down in the village and began to garner some attention. Keith Richards' girlfriend, Linda Keith, was a fan and tried to get some of her contacts to pay attention. But all of them, most notably Stones producer Andrew Lou Oldham, didn't see or hear the same thing she was. Then she happened to find out that the Animals' former bass player, Chaz Chandler, was looking to become a record producer. She brought him down to the Cafe Wa so he could hear the band and... Well, history was made. Happy ending, right? Well, not quite. Chaz tried to make sure Jimmy was free and clear, so he bought out the Sioux contract and possibly a few others. But for whatever reason, Jimmy never brought up the PPX contract. He became a sensation in England and triumphantly returned to the States at the Monterey Pop Festival. He began to move in the U.S. music circles much the same way he did in England. He returned to New York to record a new single using a new pedal given to him by Roger Mayer, the Wawa. All good so far. As it so happened, Curtis Knight and Squires were also in town, so I don't know how they caught wind of one another, but Jimmy decided to drop by the studio and play around with his new toy. Now, while there, Jimmy made it clear he knew there was some sort of contractual issue with his being there. During one session, he and Curtis or another band member tried to make it clear to Ed Chalpin that if his material was ever released, Jimmy's name couldn't be on it. Chopin said sure. So Jimmy recorded stuff with them for around two days. Get that feeling. Are You Experienced was released by Reprise in the U.S. in August 1967. It didn't yield any hit singles, but it was a big seller. The Experience began touring the States before returning to England to record their next album, Axis Bold is Love. The album was finished by the end of October and hit the record shelves there in early December. But as Reprise prepared to release the album in the States early in the new year, they were met with a surprise. Another Jimi Hendrix album. In mid-December, Capitol released Get That Feeling onto an unsuspecting public eager for more Hendrix music. The cover had Jimi as he appeared at Monterey, so who could blame someone if they thought the album would contain maybe music from the festival or maybe new songs? But in the words of the Snorkosaurus, who would become Dino on the Flintstone, uh-uh, it's neither. The opening track was the first single the band released in 1965, How Would You Feel? Sort of sounds like How Does It Feel, right? The song is a loose remake-slash-ripoff of Like a Rolling Stone told from the point of view of a black man dealing with the social upheaval at the time. Simon Says is up next, and it's a goofy dance song with Curtis as song caller. Next is the 10-minute epic Get That Feeling. I'm not 100% sure if this is all Jimmy or if he had some <clears throat> help, namely someone coming in and dubbing guitars that sound like him. Side 2 starts with Hush Now, a song from the later session with the Wawa pedal. Jimmy specifically pointed out later on that this wasn't him singing, but Curtis trying to sound like him. 
thing is, Curtis and Jimmy's voices aren't really very similar, so I'm not sure what he was worried about. The last songs on the record, Welcome Home, Gotta Have a New Dress, No Business, Strange Things, are all from the 1965 sessions, some of which were released as singles but didn't sell much, if at all. No Business is the early version of Taking Care of No Business, but apart from the broken strings guitar line, they're really pretty different. Strange Things actually has some lyrical similarities to the story in Gypsy Eyes. It would lead one to wonder if Jimmy had some input in the creation of the song. As we would find out later, he certainly did. The album didn't contain a whole lot of info other than Jimmy's name and the song titles. Now, Curtis's name was on there underneath Jimmy's, but there were no liner notes or anything like that. You might think the record label was trying to pull a fast one, but they had their doubts about the situation as well. Capital put the music out, but they weren't exactly sold on the story Ed Chopin gave them, so they decided not to stick their necks out any further than they did. Needless to say, the gang over London was none too pleased. I have to wonder if this situation played a part in the incident at the Swedish hotel that landed Jimmy in jail. Warners tried to get the whole situation resolved, but the matter of the original contract came up, leaving them with less of a hand to play. They could have brought up the fact the contract paid Jimmy a dollar and it was somewhat exploitative, but for some reason that didn't come up. Yet, the deal promised Capital they would receive an album from the Jimi Hendrix experience. In return, the release of new albums from the 33 songs already recorded would cease. And they would. After one more album. Flashing. Much like what happened with Get That Feeling and Axis Bola's Love, just before Electric Ladyland hit the shelves, Flashing was released in mid-October 1968. This time, it was credited as Jimi Hendrix plays Curtis Knight Sings. as just a bit more indicative of what's actually on the record. Again, it was a mix of the 1965 single sides and jams from the 1967 sessions. Gloomy Monday starts the album off, and it was actually at the recording for this song that the whole You Can't Use My Name situation occurred. Hornet's Nest is a distaffed version of Flight of the Bumblebee, so it does have a link to Jimmy's future work since Bumblebee became a part of the 1970 versions of Loverman. Fool for You Baby is a pretty good little R&B number, while Happy Birthday is not a jam on the one that we all sing at birthday parties. Side 2 begins with the title track, Another Jam. In fact, almost all of Side 2, including the Beatles' Day Tripper, Oddball, and Love Love, are jams from the 1967 sessions. Only the closer, Don't Accuse Me, is from the earlier ones from 1965. Flashing and Day Tripper were actually part of one long jam that Chopin just split in two. It's also of interest because Jimmy plays not guitar, but bass on the song. And not just any bass, but an eight-string hagstrom. This same instrument turned up on a couple of tracks on Axis Dole played on that album by Noel. Thanks to the more accurate description of its contents, Flashing didn't do as well as Get That Feeling. But did that deter Ed Chopin and PPX? Nope. After getting the judgment in America for the Capitol album, he went to the UK and started pressing the issue there. Supposedly, Jimmy was to give a deposition in London regarding the case right around the time he died. After his passing, more new albums started popping up all over the world, some containing the tracks already released, but some had <clears throat> new tracks. 
Some of these were re-edited or instrumental versions of these songs on Get That Feeling or Flashing. But some of them were honest to God, brand new tracks. Most interesting is a song called My Best Friend, but was also titled The Ballad of Jimmy. It certainly looks like a track created to play off the fact that uh, Jimmy was close with these guys and they were very sad when he died. But in actuality, it's one of those teenage car crash songs so prevalent in the mid-60s. And the guy in the song really does seem to have been named Jimmy all along and not added in later an posthumous overdub. There was a demo that showed up later with Curtis and Jimmy coming up with the song along with a number of others. He may have been named Jimmy in the song as a sly joke at the time, but turns out it wasn't as callous a move as it originally appeared. Now, they did milk it for all it's worth by pushing the title The Ballad of Jimmy, but I'll cut them a little slack in this case. In 1976, new Hendrix family lawyer Leo Branton was finally able to untangle the Gordian knot somewhat. He did get a judge to rule that Chalpin's claims weren't credible, and Chalpin ended up paying Al Hendrix's lawyer. However, Capital and Chalpin were able to keep selling anything that had already been released. So get that feeling, and flashing remained on the market, as well as anything else that may have slipped out over the years. So we jump ahead to the 1990s. Along the way, all the way from the mid-70s through the mid-90s, these tracks were repackaged and repurposed I don't know how many times. The live ones also started coming out along the way as well on albums titled I'm a Man and On the Killing Floor and things like that. Through all of it, the Hendrix estate never really made a serious effort to bring all these releases under control. So in 1996, PPX decided to make their own version of a comprehensive box set called the Complete PPX Studio Recordings, even though a whole bunch of them are live. It does appear all 33 of the studio recordings appear over the six discs, though not exactly as they appeared earlier in one case in particular. The remaining 24 songs were from the live dates in Hackensack, Queens, and elsewhere, but they weren't 24 distinctly separate songs. At least two were different edits of earlier songs, like Killing Floor shows up as On the Killing Floor and I Should Have Quit You, you know, that kind of thing. The first disc could basically get that feeling. However, the title track is edited in half. Disc two is flashing pretty much as it is from the album, but slightly out of order. Don't Accuse Me and Happy Birthday were flipped. Disc 3 is sort of a studio mop-up disc titled The Ballad of Jimmy that contains some of the stray songs that came out after Jimmy died, as well as instrumental versions of some songs, such as Second Time Around, which is the instrumental take of Get That Feeling. It's not exactly as long as the vocal vinyl tape, but it's close. It's a little over nine minutes. Disc 4 is a precursor to the later Live at George's Club 20. This one's also called Live at George's Club 20. The track listing is similar, but not exactly the same. Disc 5 and 6 mix up the live tracks with some studio tracks, mostly instrumental versions of songs from the first three discs. For example, I think there's a second instrumental version of Get That Feeling, a.k.a. Second Time Around, along with a couple of alternate edits of Hush Now and Love Love. As we'll find out later, a number of live tracks were left off. Considering they had Day Tripper Satisfaction and I Can't Help Myself on here, it wasn't a rights publishing issue of some kind. 
So now let's jump ahead again to 2013, and after many, 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 many years of legal wrangling, experienced Hendrix was finally able to take control of the PPX recordings himself. This was good news for the diehards because it would hopefully mean all these tracks would be put out in cleanly mixed form and dealt with in a comprehensive fashion. Well, they got one of the two. Eddie Kramer did his wonderful work on the original tapes. They never sounded better. But it did seem like the ghost of Mike Jeffrey whispered in their ears, and so far they've released three volumes of PPX material, two studio and one live, and not everything yet. You can't use my name. The PPX reissue program began in March, when else, 2015, with the release of You Can't Use My Name, the PPX Sessions Volume 1. As I mentioned earlier, it would have been nice to have these albums set out in some kind of chronological order so you can see the differences between Chitlin Circuit Jimmy and the experienced Jimmy. But we have to piece these things together ourselves. So with earlyhendrix.com up to check dates, let's see what we got. The album begins with the first single Jimmy recorded with Curtis Knight and the Squires, How Would You Feel? As mentioned earlier, kind of sounds like how does it feel, doesn't it? Well, it's sort of their reworking of the Dylan classic Like a Rolling Stone. You can even hear the beginnings of Jimmy's cover version of this song that he launched on the American public at Monterey Pop. He'd done the song occasionally over in Europe before that. Like I said before, the lyrics are written to reflect the experiences of a black man dealing with the prejudices that were unfortunately around too much at the time. But interestingly, there were another set of lyrics for the song that deal with a completely different set of circumstances. We'll hear that version on a later volume. Next up is Gotta Have a New Dress. This one was originally done by Curtis back in the early 60s, and it's a typical R&B number about a guy complaining about a girl always wanting something new. Things never change. You can hear Jimmy's particular rhythm style right there at the beginning. It's not clear exactly when this was recorded, likely sometime in 1966. It's also not clear which label it was for. As Nico lays out on his site, the Squires stopped recording for PPX in early 1966 and signed a contract with RSVP Records. Now, RSVP and PPX were housed in the same building, maybe in the same office, and Chalpin had dealings with RSVP, so it's not that big a deal in the long run. It just adds yet another confusing aspect to an already confusing era. Uh, Don't Accuse Me Follows. This was the B-side of How Would You Feel. It's another R&B staple of a guy trying to convince his lady he's still true to her. You know, same old, same old. Fool For You Baby is next. It's another of the 1966 RSVP recordings. This one's got kind of a complex arrangement with an interesting keyboard part that's a little bit ahead of its time. No Such Animal is uh, the next song on the disc. This one looks to be one of the RSVP recordings. It didn't come out on Get That Feeling or Flashing, but it did come out as a single in 1970 as one of those part one, part two kind of things, part one on the A side, part two on the B side. Next is Welcome Home. This was the B side of How Would You Feel when it came out on RSVP in 1966. You see why I need Nico's help for this stuff. It's just, you can't keep track of it. Another B side, Knock Yourself Out, is next. This was on another RSVP single in 1966. On some of the paperwork, it's also been given the title Flying on Instruments. 
Uh, next is Simon says, this song may have been recorded at some December 1965 sessions the band did before Christmas and the Hackensack show. As discussed earlier, it's a goofy dance song with Curtis as the game caller. Don't turn down the volume unless you hear Simon says. Uh, an instrumental station break follows. Now surprising them with the sheer number of releases over the decade, this one never made it out on some kind of official release but it was listed in court documents as one of the tracks that was involved, so I'm surprised it held out this long. Next up is Strange Things, a kind of spooky track that to me acts in a way as a precursor to Gypsy Eyes. If you want to do a good old Marvel retcon, you can make the two guys who shoot one another in the song the same ones as in Gypsy Eyes, but you know, it's a bit of a stretch. Hornet's Nest uh, is the next song on the disc. This song was the A-side of the Knock Yourself Out single. It was recorded as Kato Special, an obvious reference to the sidekick of the Green Hornet. The TV show premiered in late 1966 as a follow-up to producer William Dozier's Batman. The two shows even crossed over at one point as well. Kato was famously played by Bruce Lee in his first major Hollywood role. Its theme song was a hopped-up version of Flight of the Bumblebee as done by trumpeter Al Hurt and heard as uh, Beatrix heads to meet the crazy 88s in Kill Bill Volume 1. And to see how this all ties together, Jimmy's own Loverman eventually had two little sections that overlap one another, the first being something people hear is similar to Batman, the other taken directly from Flight of the Bumblebee. Now, the version that's on this disc is actually an alternate take compared to the one that released as an A-side. That one will come out on a later volume. Next is You Don't Want Me, a good old R&B number about a guy losing his girl. There's a cool fuzz bass part on it that holds the bottom line down while the band contributes nice harmonies throughout. Nico notices in his review that the tape bounces back and forth between stereo and mono, kind of like what happens on the extended Little Drummer Boy on the Christmas single. He checked in with John McDermott about it, and according to John, it was just a poorly recorded tape, and Eddie did the best he could with it. Now we come to a little one-minute track called You Can't Use My Name. If there had been a big public trial with cameras and all, and Jimmy was on the stand, you know, some Perry Mason guy would come up to him and say, well, if the contract wasn't a problem, Mr. Hendricks, then how do you explain this? They'd play the tape, everyone would gasp, <gasps> you know, big dramatic moment. In reality, it was probably a little less intense, but in the end, still is consequential. As I've mentioned, no one knows exactly what Jimmy was thinking going in to record with Curtis and Ed. The most generous interpretation is he would do some recording with them as kind of a gift of sorts. Based on this exchange, he clearly knew there would be some kind of contractual issues. Even the band knew. Either Curtis or someone else chimes in telling Ed the same thing. You, you can't use his name on this. Needless to say, no good deed goes unpunished, and because of the way Chalpin dealt with the songs after Jimmy's death, all of this stuff has been dismissed as unworthy, which does the material and the band a big disservice. The album ends with the track the guys were recording when You Can't Use My Name incident happened, Gloomy Monday. This version is an alternate take compared to the ones that were out earlier on Flashing. Chalpin had done some overdubs. This appears to be the unedited version of that. The album came out on Sony, so they had enough faith in it to count it as a regular release of sorts. That changed a couple years later when the next volume of the PPX recordings came out. Live at George's Club 20. Yes, this is it. The most complete version of the Hackensack live album ever presented. 
However, in this case, they switched it over from Sony to the Dagger label. True, the quality level of the recording was a bit below a normal studio recording, but it's not a bootleg audience recording. It's an officially recorded show, or should I say shows. December 26, 1965, we've talked about often, but another date in January 1966 was also recorded. Looks like the 22nd was the day, day before my mom's birthday. I don't think my dad would have taken her to the show for her birthday. Not quite their scene. And it appears Lonnie Youngblood was with the band during this period, but he doesn't seem to be on all the various takes of certain songs as they appeared on early releases. I told you this era was a mess. The album starts out with Killing Floor, sung by Jimmy. Doing it at Monterey was apparently old hat to him. And what followed after that was a mix of R&B staples with a few originals tossed in. Last Night by the Marquets, Lee Dorsey's Get Out of My Life Woman, Marvin Gaye's Ain't That Peculiar. They cover Have Mercy by Don Covey, which had Jimmy on the original single. Jimmy comes back and sings I'm a Man as I'm a Man instead of Manish Boy. They also do a pretty raucous version of Driving South, introduced by Curtis as an original like Jimmy, and the guitar player goes to town as he plays with his teeth, and his band leader yells him, Eat it, Jimmy! Eat it! Eat it! Jimmy reads Baby What You Want Me To Do is next, a lot clearer than the Crazy Horse version on Neil Young's Broken Arrow album. They go back to Marvin Gaye with I'll Be Doggone, and like everyone else, they do their own take on B.B. King's Sweet Little Angel. That's followed by Let's Go, Let's Go, Let's Go by Hank Ballard. Traveling to California is thought by some to be an early version of Red House. They also do Ray Charles' What I Say, a song Clapton also did in his days with John Mayall. One of the unrecorded songs from the Experiences premiere at the Paris Olympia was possibly Land of a Thousand Dances. You get an idea of what that might have sounded like with the version here. The last song on the album is Come On, Let the Good Times Roll a title that looks familiar, but it's not exactly what you'd expect from this title. Jimmy's Electric Ladyland version was based on Earl King's double-sided single. This version appears to be more like Alvin Robinson's take on it. There's a lot more live material from Curtis and the Squires, or Love Lights at this point, including things like Satisfaction, I Can't Help Myself, and Shotgun, which does look like it was recorded at George's Club 20. I actually wouldn't mind some more of this coming out in a more properly mixed fashion because they really are a good band. No business. The remaining PPX studio session stayed untouched until 2020 when out of nowhere it was announced a second volume of studio material would be released in October. Another CD's worth of material could have covered the rest of the sessions that had been publicly released. But... That's not what they did, as usual. They came up with an odd concoction of tracks to put together on an album. They did put a few of the songs that people had expected on Volume 1 here. They included the original versions of a couple of others, an honest-to-God alternate version of a third, a recording session for one song that shows it was not as exploitive as originally suspected, digital versions of a special Record Store Day release single that includes a surprising guest star, and a boatload of demos to show Jimmy was really involved with creating the sound for this band. The other surprise, other than the fact it existed, was it was on Dagger, 
like the live album, instead of Sony Legacy, like Volume 1. I guess the inclusion of so many demos rendered it more in the dagger camp than mainstream release. The album kicks off with UFO, a song that wasn't on Get That Feeling or Flashing, but was pretty prevalent on the discount releases. The new mix by Eddie brings Jimmy's rhythm guitar more to the front. Next up is the title track, No Business. This song is from the same era as UFO, but was on Get That Feeling. As noted earlier, the only similarity between this and Jimmy's later taking care of No Business is the line about a guitar with three broken strings. Hush Now was one of the songs from the latter July 1967 sessions that were chopped up and turned into several different songs, some instrumentals, some with later vocals by Curtis. It's also one where Jimmy got to give his relatively new wah-wah pedal a good workout. Now, even though this next version of Gloomy Monday is listed as an alternate, it's actually the originally released version on a single, whereas the one on Volume 1 is the original take where later overdubs were done. This version of How Would You Feel, on the other hand, is a straight-up alternate right down to the lyrics. The released version is a very socially relevant commentary on the times. This one is the good old-fashioned girl dumps guy and he feels sad. Guitarist and monster Jimmy fan Brad Talinsky seems to think these later vocals were done after Jimmy's death, but it may not be the case. They may have been done in 1967, making it more equivalent to the Help Me Save Me situation. The quality of the vocal track certainly sounds more 67 than 71. The other 1967 jam, Love Love, is here. This was also split up and re-edited several times over to create new songs. Again, the Wawa gets a very heavy workout here. Now, this next one is interesting. My Best Friend, Ballad of Jimmy, takes three through five. As the name notes, it's several takes of a song the band was working on in 1965 and 1966. When the song started showing up on the umpteen posthumous albums, a lot of people thought it was purely exploitative. Curtis went in and dubbed in lyrics talking about how he lost his best friend, Jimmy. However, this is not the case. As I noted before, this song itself falls under the category of the deadly teen car crash. Why this even became a category, I don't know. The singer and his best friend, Jimmy, both go after a girl. Jimmy gets her, but his friend is okay about it, but then there's a car crash and Jimmy gets killed. The early takes here clearly show Jimmy was an integral part of the song's construction and was sort of meant to be about him, or at least a guy named Jimmy, right from the start. We don't get the original version that came out in the early 70s here, but we do get another version later on in the album. Next is the alternate of Hornet's Nest. This is another song where, in Diego Montoya's words, I do not think the word means what they think it means. This alternate is actually the originally released version. It's an alternate only in terms of another version coming out on volume one. Now, the next two songs were released as a record store day single back in 2018. Ricky Mason was another R&B artist likely under contract to PPX at that point. The song on the A-side was called I Need You Every Day. That's how it's listed on the single. But it's actually a cover of a song Fats Domino did, you know, among others, called Sick and Tired. 
Nico Bauer notes the arrangement bears some similarities to what Bleeding Heart would become in the 1970 recording that ended up on War Heroes. But it's the next song that's of greater interest. Suey features Jimmy playing on a song with vocals from The Girl Who Can't Help It, Marilyn's main competitor, and Detective Olivia Benson's mother, Jane Mansfield. And as usual, even this one track has a confusing history. Jane Mansfield cut two songs with PPX as the clouds go passing by and Suey. After decades, it was finally confirmed Jimmy did not play on the former, but was on the latter, just not on the single version. Much like Aretha Franklin saved me on top of the Ray Sharp Help Me backing track, Jimmy's rhythm guitar was mixed down. But a mix did exist with Jimmy on it, as well as an additional vocalist, Jocko Henderson. From what can be gathered, Jimmy was not on the actual session with Jane Mansfield, but was in the one with Jocko Henderson. So Jimmy and Jane were never in the same studio together, but what a story that might have been. Unfortunately, Mansfield's car accident was just after the Monterey Pop Festival, so their paths never crossed again until Jimmy joined her in the great beyond. So all that takes up half the album. The back half basically site two in the old parlance, is a series of demos done by Jimmy and Curtis for a number of songs, some released, some not heard before. No Business is the earliest incarnation of that song. Working All Day has additional vocals, making it sound like an outtake of Chain Gang. Two Little Birds and Suddenly Have a Very Platters-ish sound to them. The demo for UFO is just as rocking as the full man version. Better Times Ahead is the beginning of the My Best Friend Ballad of Jimmy sequence. It has that sing-songy section towards the end of the verses. Everybody Knew But Me and If You're Gonna Make a Fool Out of Somebody are pretty typical R&B numbers, and the album ends with a demo for My Best Friend, which works as well with just the two of them as well as with the full band. It's a good thing the estate finally got a hold of these recordings so it could stop the onslaught of these records in the cheapy bins. I actually got one of these for Darren's birthday back in 1988, and he was like, I'm not sure Jimmy is on any of these, but thanks. I was new to Hendrix. I didn't know the whole story yet. But I think fans were looking for, as I've said before, a more comprehensive presentation of the material. Put the 1965 tracks first, then move forward, putting the sessions together, you know, just things like that. I think they kind of view it as Jimmy's other unreleased material that was released on the Sony trilogy. You know, the material is good, but it just doesn't lend itself to standalone releases like that. Plus, we're still missing a whole bunch of songs from just the original two albums. From Get That Feeling, we're just missing the title track. There are several versions out there. You have the original 10 and a half minute cut with Curtis singing over a backing track. There's an edit of that at about half the length in the five and a half minute range. Then there's a nine minute instrumental under the name Second Time Around. Uh, two of those takes appeared on the 90s PPX box. From Flashing, we're missing the title track, Happy Birthday, Oddball, and Day Tripper. As discussed, Flashing and Day Tripper were part of one session and edited apart. There are others that have appeared in numerous places like Level and Sleepy Fate that are just re-edits of some of the jams Hush Now and Love Love. But there's enough that still needs to be addressed on either a Volume 3 or some catch-all big box. 
There's one more piece of the Curtis Knight story that's of direct relevance. Jimmy floated in and out of the band through most of 1966. By the summer, he was doing his regular gigs at the Café Wa as Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. But one night in July, he played a gig with the Squires at the Cheetah Club. It was there that Keith Richards' current flame, Linda Keith, saw him and was immediately enthralled. We talked about the rest of the story earlier. She got Stone's producer, Andrew Luke Oldham, to see him, and to her shock, he was completely unimpressed. Undaunted, she heard Animal's bassist, Chaz Chandler, was looking to move into producing and wanted to work with new artists. She brought him to the Café Wad. Well, we know the story from there. I'm going to hold off on doing Lonnie Youngblood songs until next time, since it'll act as a springboard to our next round of discussions. Once again, I could not have done justice to this era without the early Hendrix.com site run by Nico Bauer. If you'd like any of this explained in a more in-depth fashion, he has done all the legwork, including input from John McDermott to clear up any confusion. Thanks so much, man. Next time, we'll take a look at Jimmy's guest appearances with other artists during his experience years, as well as the cover versions and tribute albums that have come out over the years and the wide variety of artists who've done their takes on Jimmy's material. That's next time on Keep On Grooving. I believe it'll probably be some point in August. Uh, please remember to hit the subscribe button if you like what you're hearing. I'm John Archer. Thanks for listening.